cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Shine, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marsh McLean Agency. And today we have two cyber celebrities here with us. Sherry Davidoff with LMG Security, who happens to be the CEO, as well as Michael Kleinman from Freed Frank, part of their data strategy, security, and privacy practice. Guys, thank you for joining today. Thanks so much for Thanks having, for having us, us back. Absolutely. It's very exciting to have you guys back on. We got uh, great feedback off of your first podcast. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into the weeds with all that's going on in the current environment today with respects to cyber risk. So start off with Sherry. Uh, What are some of the hot topics that you're seeing today? Well, I think right now the hot topic is that we are getting a window into what ransomware gangs are actually like, how they operate, how much money they make. And that's all happening because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So we're seeing internal discord within these groups um, and specifically with the Conti ransomware gang where they put up a pro-Russia statement and then an affiliate of the gang went and hacked the hackers, hacked them, stole their information, started leaking it out there. And all of a sudden we now know that the Conti ransomware gang has made at least $2.7 billion in Bitcoin over the past few years. Billion? Billion with a B. And that is drastically higher than the previous numbers we've seen. Mike, I know you had some numbers from Chainalysis. Can you fill us in on that? Yeah, no, that's right. Um, We have, you know, first of all, White House press briefing from October, 481 million a, part, a paltry sum for the 16-month period going from sort of mid-2020 to 2021. Um, you know, we've also recently heard, um, you know, more in line with, with what we've seen from Conti that uh, from chain analysis, that I think we're in maybe 14 billion. I think we first heard 11. It might be 14 billion now. $14 billion worth of virtual currency has some tie to um to ransomware gangs yeah illicit Um, funds so you know yeah I think that um, this really so, shows us all the dark matter that's out there because here we were tracking on over $400 million and we now know that one ransomware gang made $2.7 billion. and how much else is out there. Law enforcement is also getting better and better at following the money. So we used to think, you know, back when they were busting cyber criminals in the early 2000s, they were following them on PayPal and eGold and Western Union. And once cryptocurrency really started to rise, Um, then all of a sudden law enforcement was stymied when it came to following the money. And now we've clearly had a breakthrough. We're seeing these big busts, like the Rebel Ransomware Gang getting taken down, other groups getting taken down. And a lot of cases, they are tracking that cryptocurrency. And as a result, the criminals are moving to other more privacy-oriented cryptocurrencies. Um, I can tell you when we negotiate ransoms, they have a surcharge for Bitcoin because of the risk. They want to see payment in Monero or other private oriented tokens because they know that there's a higher risk with Bitcoin and similar currencies. But anyway, really interesting to be getting that window into their operations and finding out how much we really don't know at this point. Sure. 
So, so I guess my question to you guys, with all that's going on and the suspected heightened cyber risk, you know, in light of the cost to systems, uh, you know, how has the U.S. government responded to the mix of the supply chain type of attacks, you know, MSP type of attacks? And effectively, are they all ransomware demands? That's what we're really hearing in the news. But Sherry, what, what are you all seeing? Mike, what are you guys seeing? Yeah, so I mean, I'm not going to call the federal government, uh, you know, a sleeping giant, but I will say the sleepy giant is awake now. <laughs> um, and I think we, you know, this this started in 2020. Um, attacks continued, and then the current geopolitical state right now with what's going on in Russia and Ukraine has has really accelerated into overdrive the federal government's response here. Um, you know, I think there's a few a few pieces of the puzzle here. There's the economic piece that we just spoke about. And of course, there's the, the security piece um, and how, you know, we've been talking about the vulnerabilities and attacks on critical infrastructure, but now we're facing war. So, you know, the threat and, and what we've seen as reconnaissance in critical infrastructure and supply chain in the past 18 months. Now, you know, we don't know the full scope of, of what backdoors exist and what vulnerabilities remain. And federal government is in deep information gathering mode and they need the private sector to be a part of that. So back in October of last year, the White House briefing that I mentioned laid out four goals to try to combat ransomware in particular. They want to disrupt the infrastructure. They want to bolster resilience to withstand attacks. They want to address virtual currency uh, in terms of the ability to launder ransom payments. And Sherry just spoke about that a bit. And then leveraging international cooperation. Um, and you know, this is this is a bit of a zeitgeist, but I think it's really, really interesting to see American companies at the moment helping Ukrainians harden their their networks and, and trying to um, do what they can in terms of cyber resiliency. Um, so I'll just hit a couple more points here. Mark, I think you and I wrote about the 2020 OFAC advisory on ransomware, and I think you and I should take credit. Uh, we should take credit for for our thought pieces uh, <laughs> in terms of the updated OPEC advisory that we got in September 2021, which put a little bit more meat on the bone and gives individuals considering making a ransomware payment uh, a little bit more that they can can try to do proactively to avoid um, being hit with with a sanctions, violation, and the reputational and financial risks associated with that. So this new updated advisory tells us um, if you put in place cybersecurity practices, including those that have been highlighted by CISA, and specific things like having offline backups, having an incident response plan, cyber training, authentication protocols, some of the stuff that, that we cyber practitioners talk about on a daily basis, putting aside legal requirements. Um, if you do those things, if you cooperate with law enforcement both during and after an attack, 
the new updated advisory tells us that those are going to be significant mitigating factors. And if you follow those steps, you are more likely to have a no action letter that will be non-public in the event that there's an apparent violation for making a ransomware payment to an otherwise banned um, wallet or individual. Now, we're never going to get, right, we're never going to get full sign-off in an advisory, uh, but this is as good as we're going to get. And I actually think this is a good result. Um, and then, you know, I had come on prepared to talk about this, maybe hit on the uh, strengthening cybersecurity bill that uh, was kicking around in the Senate and a similar one that was kicking around in the House. And, you know, just this week, Senate finally pushed through the Strengthening American Cybersecurity Act, which took in three separate bills and, you know, 200 something pages long, but just very quickly uh, complementing um, OFAC's encouragement to report ransomware payments. This will require critical infrastructure owners and operators um, to report ransomware payments to CISA within 24 hours if they decide to make a payment. And it will require reporting by that same group of, of critical infrastructure owners and operators of a substantial cyber attack to CISA within 72 hours. Now, you know, if that passes and we still need to see it go through the house, there will be, um, you know, there will be a rulemaking process. So what's substantial, um, you know, who is on the critical infrastructure owners and operators list within the 16 designated categories, time will tell, but lots of movement. Mike, so, so for the listeners that, you know, I mean, you just threw out a lot of good information from a legal, uh, what is the best way to contact you? Um, is it email? Is it is it phone? How can our listeners uh, reach out to you if they had questions? Sure. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or uh, at our firm's website. You can find my contact information um, and email addresses. Um, you know, everything can be found there. Excellent, excellent. And Sherry, how, how can we find you? Oh, you can, that's a good question. Um, you can reach me on LinkedIn as well, Sherry Davidoff, or you can visit our website, lmgsecurity.com and reach out and contact us there. You can also follow me on Twitter at Sherry Davidoff. Excellent, thank you. Um, may I, uh, do you mind if I jump in and ask Mike a couple questions? Please. So Mike, you did such a fabulous job kind of summarizing the state of the industry right now and some of the movement by the government. I can tell you that I have been in this industry for 20 years, and this is the first time I've really seen the, our U.S. government put out a concrete, specific plan to the public and execute on it. I mean, they say disrupt ransomware infrastructure and actors, bolster resilience, address the abuse of virtual currency. We're seeing them shutting down exchanges like the or sanctioning exchanges like the SUEX exchange, leveraging international cooperation to disrupt. And boom, all of a sudden, Russia is giving the U.S. a gift of uh, arrest. 14 known cyber criminals. I mean, this was really some huge progress that we were already making before the war with the Ukraine and Russia. And it seems like there have been some really some huge momentum that has been created by that war as well. And I'd love to dig in a little bit on the proactive piece, because you mentioned the changes to the OFAC advisory, where um, having taken proactive steps can help uh, to get better results after the fact. Um, again, one of those points from the White House is 
bolster resilience to withstand ransomware attacks. And for, for the past two decades, um, we've seen almost a reticence to push U.S. businesses and organizations too much um, because we recognize cybersecurity is a cost. And now all of a sudden, it seems like everybody's saying, wow, we are going to pay the price unless we really invest. And we're seeing the U.S. government putting out specific concrete recommendations for pro taking proactive steps. Um, one that uh, I'd love to, to pick your brain about a little bit is um, the log4j vulnerability and the warning that we saw from the FTC. Because of course, we're, we've seen this huge spike in, um, in exploitation due to software vulnerabilities, where um, Microsoft Exchange gets ha or has vulnerabilities, or um, there's a vulnerability in like, who heard of log4j before it was vulnerable? You know, it's this open source <laughs> software package that all of a sudden we find out is used by like every software vendor and their mom, right? And so if there's a vulnerability, we're all affected. But I was fascinated to see the FTC coming out and saying, patch your systems or you might have to lawyer up. Can you tell us about the significance of this? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. The FTC is in a, is in a bit of a tight spot right now. Um, they... To make a long legal battle short, they were stripped by some of their authority by the Supreme Court last, I think it was last year, um, in terms of their ability to uh, you know, directly issue fines. They are getting creative in terms of how they can um, use their authority over companies in the data privacy and cyber realm. And one of the things that they, they need to do to be able to um, use that authority is to provide notice to people. So the log4j, I think it was really just a blog post. Um, you know, we see FTC guidance in the form of blogs or, or website postings quite often across all of their enforcement uh, areas. But this was, this was simply just to stake out some ground here to say the FCC is watching. We're putting you on notice. You need to look for log4j vulnerabilities and repair them or remediate them. And if you don't do that, and in particular, if you make statements in your privacy policies or other statements that you make to consumers that your your systems, your code, the platforms, everything is is uh, you know reviewed, remediated, part of your normal cyber and privacy compliance program, and that's false, and you have log4j vulnerabilities there that you haven't, um, you know, that you knew about or reasonably should have known about, then FTC may be coming after you. Wow, that's huge. Um, I mean, again, it's it, it's fascinating to see them really dig into something that technical and make a statement on it. I think it's a whole new era in cybersecurity. Um, one of the reasons this is also important is because, uh, again, with the the um, Ukraine war, we're starting to see wiper malware that um, could potentially exploit vulnerabilities or even um, U.S. companies could get hit by the shrapnel of this, right? Um, and Mark, I don't know if you recall back in 2016, the last time we saw wiper malware really hitting the news because of the Ukraine, it was not Petcha. Do you guys remember that? So, so Sherry, just for the listeners, can you just explain what wiper malware is? 
Oh, yes, that's right. Um, so wiper malware is malware designed to destroy a computer to wipe all of the files. And um, as of the time of this recording, we've now seen at least three malware samples that appear to be targeting the Ukraine that are just destroying their systems. Uh, and again, this is really concerning because number one, obviously, it's part of cyber warfare and attacking the Ukraine um, in an unprovoked way. But also, um, last time we saw the not Petya malware affecting the Ukraine, it was distributed through a software vendor. So um, they hacked a tax software company and installed the malware, which was then distributed to uh, all of their customers. I think 80% of organizations in the Ukraine use this particular tax software. And they had a backdoor in all these customers. Sound familiar? Hey, just in the past couple of years, we saw Russians hacking SolarWinds and 18,000 organizations around the world had backdoors in them, which totally could have been used to launch ransomware or wiper malware or things like that. So there's a concern that even though this may start off by targeting the Ukraine, it could escape. And the last time NotPetya caused $10 billion of damage around the world. Um, in fact, Mike, you're probably following Merck just said, a lawsuit with their insurer from that 2016 attack. It was a $1.6 billion lawsuit and they won. Um, so these cases drag on and on. The ripple effects around the world are huge and we all really need to be proactively prepared for that. Yeah, particularly just one, one point on the Merck case, you know, particularly as cyber coverage uh, starts to tighten on definitions and exclusions related to warfare, particularly where now we are actually in a state of cyber warfare, arguably, um, to the point where folks are, you know, not to go too off topic, but to the point where folks are debating whether cyber attacks in connection with Russia and Ukraine are going to trigger NATO obligations. So we're there. So, so we've been talking a lot about critical infrastructure and some of the attacks in, in uh, that could happen for critical infrastructure. Sherry, I'd be curious. Uh, I know you deal with a lot of uh, financial institutions and banks. Um, have they been, from an operational standpoint, kind of concerned with the new banking law, or are they more concerned with what's going on from a geopolitical environment? Mark, that's a great question, and these are absolutely interrelated. Um, the new banking law is designed to not be overly burdensome to banks, and actually, um, Mike and I just did a talk on this uh, in the past week, but the new banking law is designed not to be overly burdensome to banks, but to give regulators an early heads up about issues, and that is super important, especially if you're concerned about a large-scale operational impact on our financial sector. So again, to take SolarWinds as an example, um, if there's malware found on those networks that could potentially, that could cause actual harm, or sorry, let me pause there, give you a chance to edit that. If there's malware found on a network and is causing actual harm, Mike, actually, Mike, is it actual harm? Can you clarify this for a second? Yeah, so in terms of bank, in terms of the bank notification obligation, if there is malware that causes actual harm or is reasonably likely to do so, um, and that harm is material, and it, it causes a material degradation or disruption of the bank's operations, and operations is, is a set of things um, related to um, being able to help and service your customers, make profits for the bank, or at the macro level, 
if it's going to be a disruption to the financial stability of the United States, then you have to notify as a bank, your primary banking regulator, which is going to be the OCC, the FDIC, or the Federal Reserve. Well, it is so handy having a lawyer on the podcast. <laughs> but yeah, this is designed to give federal regulators an early heads up um, because banks will have 36 hours. That is so fast. And that's not a public notification. You know, they don't have to worry about it getting out to the media. But what this means is that regulators will all of a sudden be hearing from lots of different banks if there is an issue that's affecting, you know, multiple organizations. And they've made a point of narrowing this down to actual harm. So they're not going to hear about the, oh, we think, oh, the maybe, they're going to hear about actual hacks. And that is huge for our uh, the preparedness of the financial industry. In situations like this, where we are under, we may be under cyber attack, um, early detection is critical. And to be able to have a coordinated industry-wide response is critical as well and will reduce the damage. Um, and just one follow-up point there to show how it's so tough to figure out what the right amount of time is for notification. The commenters on the proposal of the bank notification law, some, you know, there were sort of two camps. One camp said 36 hours is way too short. There's no way that we can figure this out and be able to report, while others said, 36 hours is way too long if the goal of this notification is to be able to notify the regulators so that they can put the kibosh on this affecting us systemically by telling other banks, you know, cash out of the bag. Everybody's going to be affected by this within 36 hours. So, you know, it's it's trial and error and calibration. Along those lines, Mike, one thing I think is missing from all of these uh, regulations that I've heard about is detection requirements. Because in you know when it comes to HIPAA high tech, you have to presume there's a breach unless you can prove otherwise. But that's not necessarily the case in other areas. And I haven't seen uh, really a whole lot of talk about how well can you detect uh, incidents and how good are your early detection systems. I mean, it seems to be casually mentioned, but um, I do question whether organizations that put in strong detection systems, they're going to be reporting more, they're going to be reporting earlier, and it almost seems like a disincentive. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Sherry. And I think in in some of the recent rules that have been issued or proposed, we're still on reactive defense. Um, I guess one could call implementation of MFA proactive but the rules and proposals, they're just sort of bereft of detection. Um, you know, when I read the, the cyber trade, as I'm sure you both do, uh, you know, there's so much industry here using AI and ML and new products for detection, but I think we're a little bit behind in terms of the government um, in some of these rules and regs, emphasizing that this is something that you should should add, not just MFA and authentication protocols and having your policies and procedures, but proactive threat threat hunting and detection. We haven't really seen that yet make its way into you know codification of laws and rules and regs. 
Yeah, and to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, I mean, taking full circle, we now are starting to realize how much it is that we don't see and how much we don't know. You know, $2.7 billion to one ransomware gang, that wasn't reported to any one central organization. And it just makes you wonder, and solar winds, you know, 18,000 organizations were hacked for over six months and nobody knew about it. So how there's so much out there that we don't know. And right now the theme is just getting visibility. How can we get more visibility across our entire ecosystem? So, I, I mean, I, I think that is a fascinating conversation and, and Sherry, to your point, you know, is it a hindrance or is it a, 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 a persuasive to try and get these banks to try and, you know, can the banks then start to use that as a marketing uh, uh, pitch that we will report within a certain amount of time. So I think there's always, you know, kind of two sides of the coin to take a look at when it comes to these, you know, new regs that are starting to be rolled out. Um, but we've covered a tremendous amount of information in today's podcast. Um, from, from a summary standpoint, what would you be your top three takeaways for the listeners based off of today's conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I can hit that first. Um, I think we have a ton of new legal requirements coming in in cybersecurity and operations. So, you know, my practice straddles data privacy and cybersecurity. And on the data privacy side of the house, we always say map your privacy obligation. You really also need to map your your cybersecurity obligations in terms of reporting. You know, before it was sort of uh, a, a, not a perfect overlap, but you know, a data breach notification law kind of hit both. Uh, with some of these new proposals and some of these new rules, we're not talking about data breach. We're talking about an interruption of your system that could have data involved or could not. So, you know, it's important to map both the legal requirements you have there, as well as contractual obligations that uh, you know you may push down to your service providers as well in terms of when they have to notify you so you can hold their feet to the fire. That's one for me. Number two is taking your map, build these new legal requirements into your incident response plan. Um, you know the bank notification rule for example, has um, some particular um, some particular notification requirements. There's no form. You have to have um, you know the email address and phone number of your primary regulator. If you are a bank service provider who is subject to this law, you have to have bank notification um, contact. So there's a lot of contact information that has to go into this plan um, that you know you need to keep handy. You need to know what's the difference between a substantial cybersecurity incident that we're now going to see what that is in the critical infrastructure bill versus a notification incident in the bank security rule. And you know there's several other definitions kicking around that are similar or different from NIST definitions. So you need to have those all clear and make some matrices. And then finally, for management, general counsels, boards, read the news and get comfortable with the idea of 
disclosing cyber incidents. Um, you know, of course, you should work internally and externally with all of your stakeholders to determine on a case-by-case -case basis when such incidents need to be reported, but get comfortable because there are new reporting obligations that are coming. So that was long. Those are my takeaways. Uh, well, I certainly agree with all of those. Um, I think also we have to remember now is the time to deploy proactive measures. Things like multi-factor authentication, endpoint detection and response, security training. We have to figure out what is blocking organizations and just jump over those hurdles and make it happen. Um, and then second, we need to be getting visibility in the into the problem in order to be able to protect ourselves because the cyber criminals have gotten very professional they have these scalable, sophisticated operations. And so we need to be working together to defend against them. At an organizational level, we need visibility by installing appropriate detection systems and response systems, monitoring, because the earlier you detect an incident, the better able you will be to prevent it from metastasizing into a bigger problem like ransomware. And then second, we need visibility on a global scale because we can't solve this problem organizationally. And that is the the purpose of these new reporting requirements. It's not to create a burden. I actually think these laws are very well designed. Um, it's not to create a burden on individual organizations. It's to help create clear rules so that we can all work together and understand the true scope of the problem because it is far bigger than we have realized. Well, I, I mean, I really enjoy having you guys on. I mean, and not only do our listeners learn, I learned from you all. And, and I thank you for your partnership and coming back on the show. Uh, for the second time uh, and chat and cyber with us all. So, so Sherry, Mike, thank you for your time today. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks, Mark.